All right, we're back. A and D do ID. Here we go. We are going to talk about HIV and some opportunistic infections as well. It's kind of a big topic, so you're going to want to listen to this one again. But we're going to do our best to keep it simple. All right. So, so HIV, acute HIV, often presents with flu-like symptoms. So it's kind of a mimicker. You want it's hard. It's easy to miss. Acute retroviral syndrome. There you go. There's the actual word. That's for when it. they're converting. Yep, they're starting to make antibodies so their antibodies won't be positive, so you have to actually test for their actual RNA Correct. in their blood. So, But HIV, the main feature that you're going to be looking for is their CD4 count and whether or not it's decreased or not. Yes, which will happen later, but right? Correct. Uh, so it is a virus, a retrovirus, that attacks CD4 T cells. That's kind of its made, major claim to fame, if you will. In the pediatric population, which all of our, most of our listeners are pediatricians, so in the pediatric population, the most likely way for a kid to get HIV is, one, behavioral, so things like drug use, sharing needles, and sexual contact. And then the other one is the vertical transmission from mom to baby during birth. And that's the one that I think is tested most often is about vertical transmission. It is something we deal with a lot on the newborn unit actually here. So, HIV during delivery is the most common transmission route in kids. Remember that breastfeeding can actually transmit HIV as well. And... It is one of the very few maternal absolute contraindications to breastfeeding is HIV in America. Now, if you live in a third world country, that is not true because the benefits of breastfeeding outweigh the risks of HIV transmission. But nonetheless, we are in the U.S., so it is not uh, allowed. But the best way to prevent HIV in the kid is to prevent the transmission during delivery the most, uh, the recommended antiretroviral therapy in the mom is maternal zidobutene and then neonatal zidobutene once they're born. Mm-hmm. And this actually can decrease their risk by a very, like, very large amount. We don't even really see transmission that much if people are compliant with their medications. And we'll just talk about meds for a second since you're there. So zidobutene is one of the um, nucleotide Analog Reverse Transcriptase Inhibitors, or NRTIs. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah. so Totally knew it. Uh, they want you to know it. I know, I know. Um, Nevarapine is another one um, that you need to know, and that is a non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor, or an NNRTI. And then indinavir is a protease inhibitor. So the NAVIR-Navir drugs are protease inhibitors, and the peen drugs are typically the NNRTI drugs. So that's a way to try and remember it. And the reason that we need to know is that you usually need combo treatment. That's part of the, H- the HART therapy in the HIV is to have combinations of protease inhibitors and NNRTIs. Correct. But for prophylaxis, they just need the zidobutene. Right. The baby needs zidobutene as well. And then... In a in neonate, sometimes you'll look for recurrent um, or persistent thrush. This can be a clue um, that they're immunocompromised if you don't get a good history from mom or if you're not knowing it. But you can also see weight loss like failure to thrive and fevers and night sweats in infants as well. So you have to track these kids, mm-hmm. whether they get it as an adult, like if they have an exposure um, 
not as an adult, but as an adolescent. So if an adolescent has uh, sexual contact with a known HIV person, or if it's a baby who has been exposed possibly during delivery, then you have to track them and test them for HIV. So you have to test them at time of exposure. So when they're born and, or if they're an adolescent, when they come to you, and then at six weeks, 12 weeks and six months. Mm-hmm. And somebody should seroconvert. So what that means is they should start making antibodies to the virus by six months. So that's why you test them over time, multiple times, six months, 12, I'm sorry, six weeks, 12 weeks, and six months. So the most sensitive test for HIV in young children, in children younger than 18 months, is the PCR for HIV DNA. But in your adolescent population, you can test for HIV RNA, and that's the typical, it'll be uh, type 1 and type 2 RNA that you're testing for. But in your babies, you're going to be looking at HIV DNA. So I know that's a little bit confusing, guys, so just think about it for a second. So your babies, you're going to be looking at a PCR for HIV DNA, but anybody that comes into your clinic that's older than 18 months and you're thinking about it, you can use the HIV 1 and 2 RNA test. If you're worried about acute Correct. retroviral syndrome. Correct. All right. Didn't mean to confuse you guys. I know. Sorry it about that. It was a lot. I'm sorry. So the other thing we should talk about is CD4 counts. Yes. The definition, you know, of... AIDS is when your CD4 count is less than 200. But what I learned getting, that's what I've always been taught. We all learned that probably in med school as well. But what I learned while we were getting ready for this talk was in kids, in young kids, especially under like five or six, we use the percent of CD4 count because they actually will have a, they should have a higher CD4 count at baseline. So there's AIDS definition is a lot higher than 200. And so normal um, for somebody is the CD4 percentage is 40%. Correct. Um, which equivalent, which is equivalent to a CD4 count of? Like normal, like a, over 500. Over 500, okay. In a, in a normal person. Sure. But then if they're less than 15%, that's equivalent to? Less than 200. Less than 200. So if, if you see, a, I, I don't know if they would give you this in a test question, but they could. Kids less than 15% CD4 count, that is equivalent to less than a 200 CD4 count. So that is an AIDS-defining correct uh, lab test. And it is fair game, honestly. They're going to expect you to know CD4 counts. Just kind of keeping the 15% and the 200 in the back of your mind looking at questions. Because that does come into play, like, for instance, with vaccines in HIV. Yes, I love this one. HIV positive children get all of the routine vaccines except for measles and varicella when their CD4 counts are less than 15%. Right. So they remember that the, um, uh, measles and varicella are both live vaccines. And so they have uh, increased risk of kind of converting to a disease process. So if the child is immunocompromised meaning AIDS, so less than 15%, then they need to um, not receive those vaccines. But if they're normal CD4 counts, they can still get them if they're HIV positive. And I think for all intents and purposes, that's the way the question's going to be, is if there are any vaccines that this child shouldn't get. And if it's an inactivated vaccine, then they should be getting it. And honestly, I would probably err on the side of giving the vaccine. Get vaccines. Yep. They save lives. Despite what other people say. (laughs) Just throwing that in there. 
Okay, before we start into opportunistic infections, let's do a little recap because we got a little, I think, confusing at the beginning. For HIV testing, in an acute HIV uh, syndrome, so the acute retroviral syndrome, these patients don't have time. They have just gotten infected, like they just got HIV, so they don't have antibodies yet. So in a normal non-neonate, you will test for an HIV RNA to look for basically a viral load to see if they have any virus around, and that's how you'll know if they have it or not. They will still need antibody testing later to officially like rule it out that they don't have HIV, um, but initially it's RNA for a non-neonate. So this comes into this is important when you think about how to test for neonates because if you test the neonate for RNA, you're going to get mom's RNA in the blood. And you get mom's IgG in the blood too because IgG will cross, cross the placenta. Right. So you, that's why we test HIV DNA in neonates, anyone under 18 months. Correct. DNA for those darn babies. And D comes before R, R in the alphabet. So it's younger. Yep. There you go. And then remember, again, we're testing kids and anyone who's been exposed at six week, at the time of exposure or birth at six weeks, 12 weeks, and six months to make sure that, to see if they've seroconverted. Now that we have made that as clear as mud, we will go ahead and start opportunistic infections. It's because these tend to happen once you're in that less than 200 uh, CD4 count. The big one is... I call it PCP, but I know it has a new name. PJP. Yeah, it's not as fun. No, PCP. Because it's not really PC, PJP, it's PCJ. <laughs> Pneumocystis irovecchi. Yes. You know? But, yes. PCP pneumonia um, is one of... I kind of find it interesting. These people, HIV patients, they'll come in with two to three weeks of this kind of indolent, worsening cough. Um, they often don't look super sick right away. They kind of can look normal-ish. I actually had one of these recently in the urgent care of our ED, oh, which perfect. was great. Three weeks of indolent cough who had PCP pneumonia, HIV, an HIV patient. Whoops. Yep. So remember to prophylax your patients with HIV who have a CD4 count less than 200 with Bactrim to prevent PCP pneumonia. And remember the classic buzzword for PCP pneumonia is ground glass appearance on chest x-ray. Which I'm sure, like, everyone looks at a chest x-ray and goes, yep, that's definitely ground glass. <laughs> but they love those buzzwords. They do, they so love it. pay attention to it if you see it on the boards. All right, the next one that is common in HIV patients is cryptosporidium. Diarrhea. They do get diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a nice little sound effect you got there. Do it again. Diarrhea. Cryptosporidium. So you're going to have uh, severe, non-bloody, watery diarrhea. It's going to look like a, gastro, a viral gastroenteritis, except it lasts longer. Healthy kids that are not immunocompromised can get crypto, but it's, last, it's going to last 7 to 10 days, and it's going to fit right in your realm of viral gastro. You're not going to think twice about it. Yeah. But... If you're HIV, this can last for a long time. They can get really sick and dehydrated from all this diarrhea, and... Uh, Basically, you got to think about it in your diarrhea, That's in a, especially an immunocompromised person. That's been going on for a long time. And it's probably worth noting, how do we treat this? 
Oh, man. You're asking me some questions that I don't know. I had to look it up. Nita... Really? <laughs> Nitazoxanide? I've never even heard of that medicine. N-I-T-A-Z-O-X-A-N-I-D-E. You want to take a, a shot at that? Nitazoxanide. That's what I go with. Nitazoxanide. Now, uh, how do you get cryptosporidium? It's actually... Uh, the most common like outbreaks are from contamination of like water supplies and swimming pools. Um, also can get it from farm livestock or petting zoos. So if you have an HIV patient, especially if they're in that less than 200, you got to, you know, tell them maybe maybe no petting of the baby sheep or the baby goats or the, you That's know. So sad. It's sad. I mean, I just, I went to a petting zoo this weekend, actually. <laughs> but hopefully I didn't get cryptosporidium. Uh, that's about it for them, right? The yeah. other one is TB. TB is a big gun. We're not going to cover it right now, but we will cover it, we promise, later. Yeah, but you do need to think about it as an opportunistic infection in your HIV population. Yes, for sure. And remember, less than 200 CD4 count, they get Bactrim as a prophylactic to help with PCP. All right, that's HIV in a nutshell. I'm sure we missed some stuff, so make sure you read up on HIV additionally, but I know we hit on some big stuff that'll be helpful for you guys and definitely stuff that's high yield and tested often. One more time for the listeners. Cryptosporidium. Diarrhea. That's good. <laughs>